All right, well, what a blessing that is, and it's great to have our instrumentalist back, and uh, man, it's just good to be here with you all this week, isn't it? And, uh, you know, as we've been walking through this, you can open up to Esther if you have your Bibles there, and just uh, two books to the left of Psalm, uh, right between Job and Nehemiah. And uh, so I thought about this, you know, a new genre started probably 15 years ago, maybe a little more, called Reality TV. And I was so excited by it because you see real people. You get to see how they react instead of just actors and, and you know, stories that are written and contrived. Uh, began with some competitions, right? Survivor, Nathan Race, and then, then they started to follow families around like uh, 19 Kids in County, and then Duck Dynasty came along. Pretty soon, they moved from uh, reality to what we began to realize is edited reality to make it look how they wanted it to look. And then they put these people in situations to gain responses or set them up for something funny. It became a little less real. Um, and it became manipulated. And over the past few years, the new reality TV really is our phones, right? Uh, picking up moments and situations in time. And the reality of how harsh the world is and how quickly that can be shared. And it can often overwhelm our souls. I don't think we were designed to uh, have that poured into our minds and, and carry the weight of the entire world on our shoulders within the moment seeing everything that's going on. And uh, within that, uh, we can easily begin to ask, what is reality? We, we love the, the Disney movies or the stories or the books or the Hallmark movies that uh, take a story and it all just wraps up neatly in the end. Everything comes together. Uh, and often we can take the Bible and, and, and trying to teach it, not only with kids, but to one another, we can take it and try and shape that story and leave out things that are a little ugly and messy to make it look like everything works out pretty in the end. And, you know, we're in the midst of a book about a queen who saved her people. And it, it is a good story, a heroic story. But one of the reasons I chose it is that I wanted to preach a book uh, that is real and raw and that wrestles with the messiness of life and moral ambiguities and questions of, was that the right thing to do? Was that approved of by God? Uh, you know, sometimes we wonder why people get detached from God or feel he's, he's not relevant or, or feel that God doesn't care or they begin to feel the Bible is outdated. I think sometimes it's because we like to have a trend of packaging messages instead of letting the Word of God speak and showing that these are real people that set in history that dealt with some of the horrible things that we deal with in life. And we're going to see that, especially over the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to really come face to face with some evil uh, and things that were going on. And, and we're going to have to ask ourselves uh, some questions about what we believe about God. And so well, last week we began and, and we, say, we said this. We said, faith through the fog uh, begins, not beings. Uh, begins with a firm foundation. God is in control. That's the foundational belief. In the midst of this pagan society, this king throwing big parties, celebrating himself, 
Do we have this solid foundation to stand on that we believe God is in control? That word for in control and God being powerful is sovereign, sovereignty of God. And we said that we need to keep moving forward by faith one step at a time. Trusting God. That's how you get through the fog. You don't just stand in it. You get through it by moving forward and trusting God. And we introduced ourselves to Esther and Mordecai briefly last week at the beginning of chapter 2. And we saw that um, Mordecai is not her father, not Esther's brother. Now he is her cousin. And her parents both died and he took her in. And they are exiles in Susa, which is the winter capital for this kingdom ruled by Ahasuerus. Everybody needs to practice that during the week, because at the end of the message here, I'm going to say that ten times. So you got to get it down. But Xerxes is the Greek name for this ruler. And now, as we jump into to chapter 2, we, we finish this party, and the king, the queen Vashti, refused to come see the king, and she was ousted. And then we see here the opening of chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, a historical study of this setting uh, shows that there's about four years gap between uh, him realizing what he did. I don't know, but he was busy. Uh, Xerxes was actually off to war. And we understand that these are uh, the very years that he was absent from Susa on his campaign against the Greeks that you may learn about depending on what part of world history you're studying in school. And so uh, through verses 1 through 4, we see that it took him a while to calm down. And then, once again, he's heavily influenced by the people around him. So the young men around him said, well, you're the king. Why don't we just gather all the beautiful young virgins and, and bring them before you so you can pick out who you want to appoint as queen. And so they began this. And in verse 4 it says, And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashton. This pleased the king, and he did so. And so... This isn't a Cinderella story where everybody got a nice invitation says, come to the king's palace and, and we'll have a dance and whoever he falls in love with gets to be queen. And then the women go home, most of them are disappointed, but then one gets to live happily ever after. That's not what this is at all. All the beautiful young women were taken into custody. Let that sink in. They're taken from their homes into custody. And in verse 12 and 14 gives us a picture of this process. Um, it says this. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return. 
she would return uh, to the second harem in custody of Shahagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So we read that Esther was beautiful, therefore she was taken in for this horrifying process. And they overwent this for a year. Now, as we look at this, we need to understand that they weren't allowed back in society. Their, their life with their family was done. They were put into this preparation group, but then after uh, they went in and the king did what he wanted with them, they would shamefully walk over to the harem. Some, never to be called again, separated her from society for the rest of their lives. Never being able to have a family, have a child, just paraded around for the king. It's sex trafficking. That's what this is. They're stealing these girls from their family, and, and one man is, is using them for himself. And we can't hide the ugliness of this situation. Uh, and the reality is we're not much better off today. There may be a fog over some of our eyes, but within our cities and streets, we do understand that this happens to young women, especially the more that we loosen our regulations on drugs. The more police officers have told me, the more trafficking has gone up. It's a real situation not only here, but around the world. And it's a part of our sinful nature as human beings that has been present for a long time. Uh, an abuse of the gift of women from God. God made Eve and Adam looked and said, Oh, Lord, what a gift! And yet we have taken that and, and abused it. Their value and the worth of women. And today we objectify them with false pictures of beauty uh, on screens all of the time. Not fully and rightly declaring that God sees you as beautiful, male and female, designed in his image. And it's our hearts that God looks and penetrates to that makes us the most beautiful of all. And so, as we look at this, uh, we have to have our eyes open, yet we come to our first moral dilemma in the story. Because here we see that Esther uh, had to take in this was taken in and taken into custody and when the king's order was proclaimed in verse 8 uh, many young women were gathered in Susa in the citadel and Esther also was taken we, we don't know if they fought this or if there's a battle or if they just went willingly because that's, that's the way it was we don't know if Mordecai tried to stand up and stop this injustice or if he just accepted it. All we know is he told her, do not reveal to them your ancestry that you are Jewish. He knew enough about the culture at that time that that would automatically put her on the outs, especially with some of the officials underneath the king. And so Mordecai, we see, did his best to, to seek updates on her. He'd go by the gate and try and hear how she was doing. He still, he cared for her. He missed her. He wanted to make sure she was all right. But he was ultimately power, powerless to change her plight. So as we move forward, um, we see that Esther steps in and, and she begins to please Haggai and want his favor. Uh, perhaps this reveals a, 
not only outward beauty, but an inward beauty, a wisdom that Esther possessed. Um, gaining favor. And, and she actually, before she goes into the king, it says she asked his advice. Says, you know, you've been doing this a long time. Why do you think I should bring it with me? She gets advice before she enters into that situation. We don't know what her mindset is. We aren't told how she's approaching this. Uh, but we are told that her night goes really well. Contest over. She wins. The king declares and has a banquet in her honor that she is the, the new queen. And this wasn't a slow process. It took a year. And then the king would just have them night after night. It would be over a length of time that he had women in and out. And then exiting chapter 2, we get this brief little story at the end that just says that uh, Mordecai was sitting by the king's gate and he overheard a plot to assassinate the king. And he was able to get word uh, to Esther. And Esther said it and they shared it with the king and so he had it recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king that he was saved because they found out that it was actually a real plot. They captured him, and they hung him, and they killed him. And so, as we look at this chapter, and we begin to see that becoming queen and saving the king, that, that's where you like to end, right? It's like it all worked out. Everybody ended up in a good spot. Um, and yet, how did that happen? Some people might look at that and say, yeah, that's just a bunch of great coincidences of going from rags to riches. Uh, I like sitcoms, and one of the sitcoms I've enjoyed is uh, uh, Seinfeld back in the day. But I remember once that they had an argument just between Jerry and the girlfriend, the two characters, and, and uh, they ran into somebody and he said, well, that's just a big coincidence that he'd be here right now. And she's like, no, it's just a coincidence. They began to argue, uh, are there big coincidences and little coincidences or just coincidences? They got going back and forth, and, and she broke up with them. She said, there are only coincidences. Well, when we look at the Bible, are we saying it's a stroke of luck? Is it, is it fate or is it karma that these things happen? Or do we have a God of care, compassion, and control that, that is over everything? So when we look at history, do we look at it through a biblical worldview that says we understand who God is, and we believe that God is in control. And so our big idea for Esther is this, that Esther is in a position of prominence because of God's providence. Now, you read that she found favor, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph in the Bible, in Genesis, sold into slavery, all of these evil things done against him. Yet in each place, in that story, it was stated clearly in the scriptures that God showed him favor and advanced him. And so therefore, I believe that God is at work here in showing Esther favor. He's got a plan that is not known to them. The two of them didn't go into this planning to set themselves up, to make her queen. They're just adjusting as life is thrown at them and as people were sinning against them. So the question this morning we're going to dig into a little bit is what is God's providence? Um, if we begin to understand this term today, that will be a fun accomplishment because as I was talking uh, with young one, 
And he said, I'm really excited about this book coming out by John Piper on Providence. Well, I looked it up, it's coming out, and it's 600 pages. And I'm supposed to make a side point on it today. But uh, long have authors and scholars been intrigued by how does God operate within this world that we live in? What does it look like for God to control and move in history and yet allow us these choices in our lives? that we call free will. Now, providence um, ties closely uh, to the word sovereignty, as we mentioned earlier. And sovereignty is God is all-powerful and in control of everything. He reigns, he rules, he is sovereign. So if he weren't, he wouldn't really be worthy of being God over all creation. We'd have to find, like other cultures, little gods that are in charge of little pockets of things. But we're saying our God, the God of scriptures, is in control of everything. Furthermore, we have a, a word used to describe God's nature. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we see the concept of the Trinity over and over and over. The three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all one, yet unique in their personhood and unified. And so the word providence is just like that. It's our word to describe what we see God doing in the scriptures and in our world. And a providence is, um, describes the reality we see, and it describes how God works his sovereignty alongside our free will to accomplish his ultimate purposes. It's how God works his sovereignty, his control of authority, alongside our choices, our free will, to accomplish his ultimate purposes. We often say this line, right? I often say, for his glory and for our good. God is always about his glory because he's holy and perfect. But he's so loving as we sung today. He's always working it out for our good. Even when we don't see it in the moment. Uh, Jerry Bridges, a uh, great author, says, God's providence is his constant care and his absolute role over all his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. And so I love that quote, and that's uh, by Jerry Bridges. Another quote is that providence is a lot like reading Hebrew. Now, if you ever had to read Hebrew, you read the words backwards. And providence is best read backwards. I always seem to recognize it after something has happened, not in the moment. Um, Sometimes it's just hard for us to see beyond our circumstance and really trust or figure out how on earth will God use this mess in my life. One way in which um, the, we often say, I guess I should start this way, is that the Christians aren't impacted. We understand this. We're not impacted by what the world thinks. But in the secular mindset, it's, I think, made inroads into the Christian mindset and worldview. And that assumes that everything happens according to fixed and natural causes. There has to be a reason for it. And God, if he's actually there, well, he started things in motion and then backed up. And he really doesn't get down into the nitty-gritty of people's lives. He's just a spectator, cheering us on, but exercising no immediate control. And yet... Christians, we say, well, we don't believe that. But you see, naturalism suddenly slips into this idea that 
we're the master of our own fates. That we're the center of the universe. And, and, and everything is about us. And then all of a sudden we take these stories in the Bible and we, we turn them into these almost like a fairy tale with a good moral lesson, but we don't look at the character of God. We, we ignore things and we, we try to make each person into a hero. And um, if you do that, if you remove God's providence from the story, you've got a problem. Because Esther, is she to be followed or is she flawed? Is Mordecai to be followed or is he a flawed hero? On the one hand, uh, if you were to take a more liberal or feminist point of view and make Esther a hero, you'd say, well, she fails. Because she didn't use her position and authority to impact the women behind her. She gave in to the system. But then if you go to the religiosity side, you'd say, well, Esther's a moral compromiser. Look at what she did. Mordecai would fall into the same division. You see, we're indeed free to make choices, but the good news and the great news is that God is sovereign. And in his providence, he sees to it that his plans and purposes move forward. After all, if he were not God, he would not be able to be in control. One of the best uh, books written on this uh, would be called The Grand Weaver by the late Ravi Zacharias. And uh, if you don't know Ravi, he's uh, Indian in descent. And uh, coming out of India, he became the, one of the world's greatest minds and, and promoters of the gospel. And he's, he shares a powerful story of going into a shop where they make the beautiful saris that they wear, the Indian dresses made of fine fabrics with intricate designs, beautiful. There you go. But, uh, and he was excited to go in and see this factory looking, he was expecting to see machines um, going and whirling all about, but when he entered the factory, uh, what he began to see was a father up on a platform with all kinds of threads and the sun just below him. And every now and then the sun's only job was to move uh, this lever back and forth. And he'd do that hundreds of times for each sorry. Uh, and you can see here just the beautiful pattern that's woven. And yet it's the father who takes these disheveled strings and moves them about and brings them together. And in order to do that, he's got to have a vision in his mind of the pattern that is forming ahead of time. And he's directing everything so that in the end, it comes out absolutely beautiful. Robbie says the son had the easier task. He was only to move at the father's nod. Making use of these efforts, the father was working to an intricate end. All along, he had the design in his mind and was bringing the right threads together. He says, the more I reflect on my own life and study the lives of others, I'm fascinated by the design God has for each individual. If only we would respond. All through our days, little reminders show the threads that God is weaving in our lives. He says, I want to share with you my own experience. At age 14, he was depressed, disengaged, without hope. 
He tried to take his own life. He ended up in the hospital. His suicide attempt failed, and, and there was a Bible there, and he began to read the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. And in that, uh, it says this, Because I live, you also shall live, in verse 19. He said, I turned my life over to Christ that day, committing my pain, struggles, and pursuits into his hands. He said, nearly 30 years later to the day, he and his wife returned to India. They're looking about his family history, and he went and he found the graveyard where his grandmother was buried. But unfortunately, dirt and grass had begun to grow over the, the stone that was set in the ground, and they they took a bucket and a paintbrush and began to wipe it off. And then his wife called him over as they were cleaning it off. And she clasped his hand and said, Look, look at the verse. And it read, Because I live, you also shall live. That was the, the verse that described his grandmother's life and the verse that saved his life. Unbeknownst to him, God was weaving together bringing about this man who actually came from the same region that we believe Thomas the Doubter came from. And he became the number one asker and answerer of questions in the world. From that small background, God moved a beautiful picture of his life. So Esther and Mordecai, instead of offering us an example to follow, invite us to face the reality that in which women are often objectified, in which they're made victims, and as we'll see uh, next week, in which racism runs rampant, and where, at least for some, fear becomes more powerful than faith in the moment. And we're being invited to trace the footprints of our sovereign God and His providence who personally cares for this art for each of them and for our creation, for each of us. And he's working in and through despite sin and suffering for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Karen Jones is a great scholar and she writes on Esther. She says, regardless of whether they always knew what the right choice was or whether they had the best motives, God worked through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest people of the Bible were flawed, often confused, and sometimes they were outright disobedient. And yet God continued to work. And so this morning I want to challenge us to look, and look at this through the eyes of providence and find a picture of the gospel. And I want to teach you kind of how to bring the gospel even into your own life and look for moments of providence. And so, the gospel through Esther. Now this is where you're going to see, say the name Ahasuerus of Bernobu. But he exercised authority, right, for his own gratification. But Jesus exercises his authority for our good. See, when we go to these stories, we can contrast the main actions there and remind ourselves of who God is in his character. Because this is ultimately a story about him. Ahasuerus saw a beautiful and pure bride. What does Jesus do? Jesus is making us into one. To be presented to him perfect without blemish, because he died on the cross for you and I. Isn't he so much better than the authorities of this world? Ahasuerus left the women he used with shame. 
But Jesus has taken our shame away. What an amazing Savior we have. Mordecai can only check on Esther's situation, but Jesus can change yours. And he's actively working to change yours today, whether you see it or not. Sometimes we need to be reminded our role is pretty simple. We need to move back and forth trusting in him and obey the Father's nod. Often we try to fix these situations on our own, and ultimately, if we don't have God's purposes in view, we can get off track. And so, in our own lives, we can begin to look at this and apply the gospel and say, this happened to me, or this is what is going on in my life, but Jesus, and then enter a promise after that. Okay? And so, it could be that you say, my life is messy, but Jesus is making it into a masterpiece or a ministry. This person hurt me or betrayed me, but Jesus, he will never leave me or forsake me. So whatever situation you're, you're facing, put it in here. But then make it a practice to get your Bible open and look for a promise and say, but Jesus, and he does that. Whether it's your identity, your circumstance, and then you got to cling to that promise even when it's foggy all around. You see, God, the grand weaver, uh, says Robbie, he says, he seeks those with tender hearts so he can put his imprint on them. Your hurts, your disappointments are all part of that design to shape your hearts. The way you feel and the way you feel about reality is shaped by God. The hurts you live through will always shape you. And there's no other way. The overall message of the Bible is not just the story of God redeeming his people, but also the story of God raising mankind from a position of shame to an ultimate position of being a joint heir with Christ for eternity. And so this morning, we challenge you to leave here and find your hope in the work of the Grand Weaver. And I just want you to um, step back here for a moment and just, as our music team transitions back up here, I get ready to close in prayer. Take a moment and just think through your life right now. What statements can you make with that little formula there of what's going on about Jesus and then fill in a promise of the gospel? Can you see God's work in the midst? Or can you take and find a promise to, to cling to when you don't see God? A good exercise is also to take this phrase and apply it to things that have already happened in your life and remind yourself that God is active. And God does that, has done that so much since we started in time for me. This thing is happening, the thing God provides. And even this week, your trailer may have gotten robbed and jacked by somebody. But Jesus will provide. And Aspen Ridge uh, Church, so you know, is called and they gave $1,000 and said, we, we, we want to help you recoup. And uh, I was overwhelmed that they would think of us. Another small church doesn't have a ton of margin that they were led to do that. Why? Because God is at work. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the way maker. Even when we don't see what you 